Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 387 with my guest, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, and we are going to get into social anxiety, uh, in case you're not there already. Um, there's a lot of good surveys for, uh, for this podcast too. I'm going to read a couple before the interview, then I'm going to read a couple, uh, after the, the interview and, uh, some, some really interesting stuff. <laughs> Could that sound more general? We've got things. We have things that you will hear after this point in time. Big news. Well, semi-big news. My ex, uh, who I'm on very good terms with, and she lives two blocks away, got a puppy. He's eight weeks old, and his name is Grady, and he's a rescue, and he's mostly terrier. He is about the size of a loaf of bread, legs and all, about the size of a loaf of bread. Four pounds, um, black and white. And so sweet and affectionate. And he's at that age right now where they don't care that they're tripping and falling. They're just so excited by everything. And I will, we used to have a, a beanbag chair for, uh, Herbert. Uh, as many of you know, that was a dog my ex and I shared and he, he died, uh, about a year ago. And so she, my ex, put the beanbag chair away. She lives in the house that we used to live in. And uh, she brought it out for Grady. And he immediately took to it. And so when I go over there, which is pretty much every day, I lay on the beanbag chair and he crawls up on top of me. And of course, it's also that age where they're licking and they're also teething. So it's just a constant... No, 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 no. But it's so fucking fun. I haven't felt this. 
this feeling in such a long time. It's, uh, dogs are so good at bringing out the silly in, I guess, people. I got to assume other people are like me, but it feels so good. A lot of times I don't realize how overly serious I've been until I'm experiencing a moment of silliness or, you know, just reckless abandon. And it's just, it's such a good feeling. So I kind of want to, want to get a dog of my own, but I've got a big trip coming up. As many of you know, I'm going to, um, Ireland to record some guests and, uh, super excited about it. And I'm going to Croatia to record some people and, uh, I just love it. Love it, love it, love it. And could definitely use some financial support. Um, so if any of you want to support that trip and those recordings, in fact, there is under the show notes for every episode, there's a big list of all the different ways, financial and not, that you can help the podcast. And I would appreciate it if you would go check those out. And if you can't help with those in any way, totally cool. Um, I had to return something that I ordered from Amazon somehow got lost in the shuffle. And I, it said that I had to contact Amazon. I don't know why I couldn't contact the seller to say, Hey, your thing got lost in transit. But so you got, I had to go do that chat thing, which I don't know. There's something about it that always makes me uncomfortable. And so this is, and then you can get a copy of the chat sent to you. And so I wanted to read it uh, to you guys. So uh, the Amazon representative is, their name is uh, Anurag, A-N-U-R-A-H-E. And uh, they write, uh, hello, my name is Anurag. I'm here to help you today. And then I say, uh, hi, did you read what I wrote about my item being lost by the shipper? Anurag, I'm truly sorry for all this. First, please accept my sincere apologies for any inconvenience caused by this situation. You definitely don't deserve to go through this inconvenience. Me. No, but I do. Where's my stuff? Anurag, I'm sorry about the problem you had with your shipment. While we shipped your order, the inventory was provided to us by a seller, and I'm not able to send you a replacement. Me. Deep down, I'm bad. On a rock. I can help you with the refund. Me. But am I worthy of getting money back? Others would say I am, but they have low standards. I'm speaking, of course, about my family. And my friends and people I pass on the street, but not baristas. I trust them. Except Starbucks, the worst. Sorry, it's the cognac. On a rock. Yes, instant refund issued successfully. Me. Great. You've been very patient. Is there anything else I can help you with? On a rock. Is there anything else apart from this that I may help you with today? Me, I asked you first. On a rock. No, Paul. Me, thanks. And I've just been acting silly. I appreciate you letting me be a jackass. Smiley face. On a rock. Please be assured that we are here to make things easier for you 
and prevent you from bearing any further losses. Is there anything else apart from this that I may help you with today? Me. Yes. Spread the word. One day, I will be king. I could use the support. Have a great day. On a rock. Sure. I will spread it. <laughs> and then I told her, or he, him or her, that uh, they're awesome. And I honestly believe I forget to be, to have moments like that where I don't take life so seriously. And I think, I think little Grady is helping me not be such a serious motherfucker. God, can I even express to you how edible his face is? He's, oh my God. And he took a shit today that, I don't know if you've ever seen this when a dog takes a shit and it doesn't lay flat. It just, it, it stands on its end and it looks like, first of all, how did something this big come out of something that small? And it looks like the leaning tower of Pisa. Or as people from my neighborhood would say, the leaning tower of pizza. This is an awful moment shared by Matt from Montana. And he writes, I had a huge political fallout with my dad today, disagreeing about the obvious racism in this country. In that moment, I realized my dad was a monster and the very people he claimed to hate were serving his food. We were at his favorite Mexican restaurant. Here's what I think you do, Matt. You go back to that restaurant with your dad. You record him on your phone saying something racist. You excuse yourself to go to the bathroom. You play it for the cook. You remind the cook what your dad ordered and not what you ordered. And you let the cook work uh, his or her magic. This is a shame and secret survey that I feel is like really timely. Um, given the, the high profile suicides in the last couple of days. And I, I, this, this survey to me is so emblematic. I just wanted to use the word emblematic of, of how we wear masks and how we always assume that somebody who is high achieving must be satisfied. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself a uh, genius procrastinator. Uh, and this is, a, if I didn't mention, this is a shame and secret survey. Um, she's straight in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, darkest thoughts. I don't know what to say here, except that sometimes I've considered killing myself by ingesting one of the toxic substances I work with. I know that's fucked up, but it seems appropriate. I feel like I deserve to be plucked off this planet, but I'd never actually do it. My parents love me more than anything in the world, and I would never hurt them like that. Darkest secrets. I'm a PhD student in the sciences at a prestigious Ivy League University. All my life, I've been seen as the perfect student, teacher, daughter, girlfriend, sister, friend, you name it. People tell me I'm talented, beautiful, and charming all the time, and somehow I keep up this facade that I'm a hard worker with a great life who contributes to society in some meaningful way. The truth is that I'm lazy and feel worthless all the time, but I do know that I'm really intelligent to my own detriment. 
I can fool everyone into thinking I have a life when I don't. I get away with spending hardly any time on my work, and I still impress everyone in my lab, in my department, everyone at home, and so forth. The truth is that I often stay in bed and don't leave my house until about 3 p.m. Some days of the week I spend the entire morning sleeping in, watching television, watching pornography, masturbating, playing video games, and binge eating takeout and candy. Somehow my metabolism makes all the bad food I compulsively eat masks all the bad food I compulsively eat, and in the late afternoon, I saunter into work all made up and chipper, having convinced everyone around me that I just, quote, work from home. And I do get all my work done in a quarter of the time it takes most people. I feel terrible about myself, but I just cannot kick this habit. I'm so bored with everything, and I don't like myself. I was on an intramural sports team for a while, but I quit because I hated working out and the other players sucked. I also can't keep a boyfriend for longer than two months because I get bored with people. The whole thing just feels super disgusting. Have you shared these things with others? Uh, no, exclamation point. I can't tell anyone because they judge me and tell me what I already know, which is that I'm lazy and need to get some self-discipline. I might try therapy if I can swallow my pride. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel even worse about it. Seeing it all typed out makes me think I'll try to get up early tomorrow, even though I know that won't happen. You know, this this survey really um, struck a chord with me. Not that I am like this um, this woman, but the feelings that she has. And this is a really good episode for people who are identifying with this because uh, in this episode with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, she talks about the belief that we all have a fatal flaw and social anxiety is us trying to hide that flaw of being discovered as a fraud or whatever it is that our negative self-talk tells us. But um, this might be a total stab in the dark. I'm not a therapist, but reading what you describe I get the feeling that you were raised in an environment where you were your achievements. And that is a recipe for emptiness and loneliness and difficulty with intimacy. Um, it, I see it all the time with really successful people. Um, there is a difference between loving someone's accomplishment and loving who they are regardless of their achievements or failures or whatever. And it sounds to me like there is a voice in your brain that probably came from someone in childhood who probably had good intentions that wanted you to succeed so that you could be happy. But that is a really, really outdated um simplistic version of what people need to be happy. Yeah, getting by is certainly great. Having money is great. Having success is great. But if you feel like you're a piece of shit all the time and you're afraid to open up, you're missing out on what really makes life amazing, which is human connection and vulnerability. And so often households where achievement is valued way, way more than human connection, this is what happens. And you are not alone. If you're listening to this, 
you are not alone. And your instinct to want to try therapy, try it. Please, please try it. Um, and of course, that's a good segue uh, for our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Um, I have been, you know, it's, it's interesting that this um, this episode fo- focuses on social anxiety and, and negative self-talk because that's one of the things I've been working on with my counselor, Donna, uh, who I've been seeing for about two years, seeing uh, sexually. We have a terrific relationship. Um, occasionally we talk about therapy, but mostly we just bounce from hotel to hotel. <laughs> I couldn't resist that joke. I could not resist it. And I know BetterHelp loves to have those kind of jokes in their ads. But no, um, she is helping me deal with the negative voice in my head that tells me that if I am not seen, I will be abandoned and I will die. And we're going back through times in my life now. She had, she asked me, make a list of the times in your life that you felt invisible and the times in your life that you felt seen. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, next week. But the reason I bring that up is that, that survey I read, the parents that push their kids to be high achieving and, and nothing else, they are not seeing what is unique about that kid. They're, they're not seeing what that kid wants and likes. They're forcing their idea of what success is on that kid. And um, it's heartbreaking because our society is a cult of achievement. Achievement is great. I'm not putting it down. But we have to, we have to learn how to connect to each other. So if you want to check out uh, BetterHelp.com, it's online counseling. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. You can fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And don't forget to include the slash mental after BetterHelp.com because that lets you know, uh, lets them know that you came from this here show. And then finally, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Molly. And I've got to assume that she is insanely high on ecstasy. And she writes, I've recently come to terms with the fact that my brother's treatment of me growing up was emotionally abusive. One day I was feeling particularly ugly and negative about myself. And I was thinking, maybe all those terrible things about me are true. And that me feeling this way is my fault. And I was just making up that he was emotionally abusive and mistreated me. Then, that same day, while I was cleaning my room, I found a poster he'd made and given to me when we were younger, and it said in huge letters, you are ugly. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, a suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. 
And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. And I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. Uh, she... You, you're a therapist and you deal with uh, a lot of different issues, but the, the one that your book is about is uh, social anxiety, and the book is called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. You have experienced social anxiety, and as we were just getting ready to press the record button, uh, she said, well, I'm actually experiencing a little bit of anxiety right now. Should we begin there? And I was like, that would be awesome. <laughs> so uh, walk me through what you're feeling and sure, et cetera. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, no, social anxiety is near and dear to my heart. Um, so I, um, I, I guess I'll start out saying that I am to the point now that it doesn't own me that I still get anxious, but I can still forge ahead and do whatever it is that I um, am fearing or I'm worrying about. So what I do with my clients is I will ask them in order to gauge their anxiety, I'll kind of take their temperature. I'll say on a scale of zero to 100, zero being you're on the couch at home watching Netflix alone, you're chilling. 100 is a panic attack or like the worst anxiety you can imagine. Where where are you right now? Where where would a toilet overflowing at somebody's house at a party <laughs> be? Would that be ninety yeah. nine? Well, I mean, it depends on the person. You know, I mean, yes. some people I'm sure could could handle that with a your plum. bosses your bosses. House. Oh gosh, oh for well for me that would be a you know a ninety nine. But you know, I, I'm sure there are people out there for whom that'd be you know just open the door. Like, hey, I need a plunger. <laughs> Can somebody bring me a plunger? And and it would be fine. And so it's, it depends on the person. Um, but so right now I'd say I'm probably about a 40 that, um, it is like, I feel like I just had some strong coffee. Like Uh there's some adrenaline. There's a little bit of tingliness. Um, I can tell I have the urge to turn inward. Like I want to start monitoring what I'm saying. I want to do impression management, but I am, but, and we can talk about this later, um, in terms of what, what to do to help lower that anxiety. I'm deliberately turning my attention outward. So I'm, I, I wish your, your listeners could see us right now. I'm, I'm looking at your face and I'm, you know, I'm trying to answer your question. I'm, I'm putting my attention to the story I'm telling and um, the, 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 just the, what, what I'm doing right now, as opposed to um, trying to think about how it is coming across making it all about you exactly exactly like i'm i'm rather than my attention being on you know me 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 i'm trying to make it on this 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 right yeah so more the process than the results right right uh one of the greatest pieces of advice i ever got about uh social anxiety and a tool to cope with it when you're at a party with a bunch of strangers is to just ask people questions Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and just keep going. And I've never run out of questions. I'm a naturally curious person, but that has been the single greatest tool for me to uh, cope. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think that's a great tool. Um, And I think that 
that's a tool that, you know, that I use as well. I think like any tool um, overused, it can come back and bite us in the butt because part of social anxiety is not wanting to reveal much about ourselves. And so doing the things that kind of tamp down, artificially tamp down that anxiety um, are called safety behaviors. And so um, a lot of people with social anxiety and my, myself included, I, um, have definitely been guilty of just peppering other people with questions in order to feel like I am hiding or I'm concealing myself. I don't have to um, reveal anything um, about myself. And that, that again, tamps down that anxiety. But what happens is it's kind of like trying to hold a beach ball underwater that eventually it will rebound and rebound with, with force. And, and so while it can absolutely be a good tool, again, overused can get in our way. That makes that makes total sense. What are the negative self beliefs or negative self talk that your your brain is shouting at you? So or my, whispering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's interesting. So a lot of people say to me that their inner critic, their negative self talk, is kind of an asshole, like yells at them or is very harsh. My inner critic is actually more like an old lady who clutches her pearls. Like, that's inappropriate. You can't say, what will people think? Well, I never. Exactly, exactly. So, so perhaps I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm sure that's not unique, but it's for me, at least, it's less of, uh, like, what the hell are you doing? And more just like, you, oh, you, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, yes. What, what? That's inappropriate. Yes, yes exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, continue describing. Oh, sure. Um, no, I mean, I think in, to be to be perfectly honest, in in this moment, I I it, it is fairly quiet. Um, so I, as we began talking about we, it, yeah, it, 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 it dissipates. Began. Yeah, the the anticipatory anxiety is always worse. Well, okay, ninety nine percent of the time is worse than the moment. And once you get into it, or at least once I get into it. Um, the anxiety starts to go down. It's it's really if if I could draw it, it would be like a wave that it. Um, it increases fairly quickly. It's a pretty steep slope. And then it plateaus because it's physically impossible for anxiety to keep ramping up and up and up and up until your head explodes. It can feel like that, absolutely. Um, but eventually your parasympathetic nervous system is going to kick in and it will plateau. And then as you stick with it, it will start to decline. And as you do that over and over again, the, um, the intensity and duration of your anxiety will lessen as you ride it out as and you ride see, it out. see that it, exactly. it was a mountain instead of a molehill as yes, you described in your book. Exactly right. Yeah. And one of the graphs in your book, uh, you showed at the, at the peak of that graph where it shoots up in the first couple of seconds, mm-hmm. that that's where avoidance yes. normally comes in where yes. people would lose themselves in an addiction or shut down mm-hmm. or talk about that. Right, right. So, um, so avoidance. Okay. So let me back up. So social anxiety is this perception. So emphasis on perception that we have a fatal flaw, that something is wrong with us. And that unless we work really hard to conceal that or hide that, it will be revealed and become obvious to everyone around us. And they will then judge us or reject us for it. And it can, it usually comes in four flavors. So it could be our physical appearance. So it could be um, that it will become obvious that I am fat or I am ugly or I'm having a bad hair day or my skin is weird. It, so the, then the second flavor is 
are signs of anxiety themselves, that it's I'm, I'm turning red, or my hands are shaking, or I'm speaking with a trembling voice, or um, I'm sweating through my shirt. So that's the second flavor. The third is our social skills. So it will become obvious that I have nothing to say, that I'm going blank, that um, I have no personality. Or the fourth one is another big one, and it is just kind of our general character is wrong. It's that I'm incompetent or that I'm stupid. I'm embarrassing. I'm embarrassing. I'm a burden. I I'm make annoying. people awkward. Yes, exactly, exactly. They just tolerate me. Yes, yes. They're just being kind. Right, right. Nobody really yes. wants me here. They're just being nice. Something is really wrong with me. And so I need to work really hard to conceal that. And what happens is that because of this perceived flaw, we avoid and so we could avoid overtly. So that means we don't show up to the party. We don't raise our hand in class. We stay at home with the shades drawn. Um, or we could avoid covertly. So we might show up to the party, but not make eye contact with anyone or talk only to the person we came with or walk in and slug down, you know, three shots at the bar as soon as we come in to, again, to try to tamp down that anxiety. And... Um, and so, yeah, that's how avoidance works. It can be overt or covert. I am more of a covert avoider in, in, in my past. In college, I would go to the party, but again, not make eye contact or would stick to my friends or um, things, things like that. So, Would someone who is the life of the party sometimes fit into that because there's often a mask of, oh, of yeah. them? fearing intimacy sure 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 so just just like at the beginning when we talked about like asking questions mm -hmm. like that is a wonderful tool but overused you know can become a safety behavior um a, a great tool to use is to play a role to uh, give yourself an assignment um because is piece of shit a good role <laughs> well is I, that self-defeating I, I was i was thinking more something like okay i'm gonna go to this holiday party and talk to three people or i'm gonna be um the you know i don't know i'm gonna help out in the kitchen or, sure right, right exactly exactly um but that that can backfire when it becomes a mask when it becomes a way to actually covertly avoid but um but having some structure can be really, really helpful. I, I always like to talk about one of my, I'm a true nerd, because one of my favorite studies <laughs> is uh, by Drs. Simon, um, yeah, Dr. Simon Thompson and Ron Rapay, um, who are two Australian psychologists. They uh, staged this wonderful study where they took um, women from opposite ends of the like social anxiety uh, continuum. So women who had diagnosable social anxiety, and then also women who were kind of more outgoing and confidently chatty than average. And one at a time, they sent them into a waiting room, ostensibly for an experiment that, unbeknownst to them, began as soon as they entered the waiting room. And then a research assistant would come in and sit down next to them and say, oh, hope we don't have to wait too long, and then just wait and see what response they had. And so they would either chat or not. And every 30 seconds for five minutes, this, this, this guy, um, it was always a male research assistant, would just give another prompt and, and just see, see what happened. Okay, so after those... 
five. Like what kind of a prompt? Oh, just, you know, just like a, you know, oh, you know, what are you doing after this? Or um, like, oh, beautiful weather we're having. Just, yeah. you know, the small talk. B- and Buildings on fire. Yeah. Every man for himself. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, what would happen if I you know, pulled that red lever? Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so after after those five minutes, then the, the researchers would come in and say, oh, thank you for coming. You know, we really appreciate you taking part in this experiment. All right. What we're going to do is for the next five minutes, I'd like you to pretend that, that the two of you are at a party and to get to know each other as well as you can in five minutes. And then they would talk again. And this time, the, they had structure. They had some direction and knew what they were supposed to be doing. And so then afterwards, so all these, all these interactions were, were surreptitiously videotaped. And people would, um, raters would watch afterwards and rate the women on social competence. And as we might expect, in that first five minutes, they fell well behind the, the, the women with social anxiety fell well behind the women who were you know, kind of more outgoing than average. But in the second five minutes, they were almost neck and neck. And so if you, if you give people with social anxiety a structure, give them a role to play, tell them, you know, here, this is what we're doing, it's, it magically gets, gets better. It's not social skills that is the, the deficit. Um, there's, there's actually no social skills deficit in social anxiety. It's, it's that there's, there's a lack of structure. And so if we give ourselves that, or if somebody else can give us, that then we're off to the races. So that's a that's a, another tool that can be used. The thought that just popped into my mind is most people are surprised when they find out performers mm-hmm. are shy. Oh, yeah. And that for many of us, the reason why was because we could control the conversation. Yes. And we could play a role. Yes. And if you reject me, you're rejecting the character. Mm-hmm. You're not mm-hmm. rejecting mm-hmm me right there's this third party thing this this character that is either being laughed at or rejected or yes absolutely as you were sharing all those things with me the 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 four um what did you call them the the flavors flavors sure uh thought that occurred to me is at the heart of all of those is the belief that i'm not enough Mm -hmm. talk about that vulnerability and authenticity, because mm. it seems like those are the three, at least, if not the top three, three really important things to understand. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So let's, well, here, I'll start with authenticity. So, um, and by the way, right now I'm in my head because it took me long to put <laughs> that sentence together uh-huh. and I'm imagining people, uh, bailing on the podcast saying, I can't listen to this guy anymore. He's a, you know, a uh, stuttering old man ah. who should die alone. <laughs> so that's okay. So it's interesting that you are thinking that because I, as you were talking, was thinking, God, I hope I can answer this question like uh, competently. I hope, I hope this will, I hope I can rise to the occasion and answer this great question. So, right. so yeah, just it's, it's, and I, I think I would again if if people could see us like not not nobody's nobody looks anxious at least as far as thought you don't look anxious, and I think that that is something that um, folks with social anxiety uh, can can stand to be reminded of that you don't you don't look how you feel that mm-hmm. all the stuff can be going on in your head the chatter or the old lady or the asshole can be yelling at you, and you look totally normal and and I think we forget that. Um, you know, mo- most of the time, you know, 
we share our experience with other people. Like people can see what we see, people can hear what we hear, but not when it's in our head, not yeah. when it's not when it's just our private, you know, um, inner critic talking. But we 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 kind of act like it is a shared experience. We assume that they're going to reject us. We assume that they're just being kind. We assume that they're just tolerating us. And the irony is our shared experience is that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And nobody talks about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's social anxiety is uh, um, this. I, I will get to your question. <laughs> um, but as a as a necessary tangent, there's this sense of wanting to blend in. There's a sense of wanting to uh, be invisible um, and not be noticed because we're afraid that people are going to notice this fatal flaw. But be careful what you wish for, because then what happens is if that succeeds and we do manage to, to blend in or not be noticed, we have to deal with the consequences of not being noticed. We get talked over. People ignore us. We don't get invited. We don't get invited. Exactly. exactly. So, I'm, so for example, I am working with this lovely um, young woman uh, in, in the clinic right now. I'm, well, I'm supervising her care. And so I watch her. Um, I watch her sessions on video and, uh, and she, um, is one of the 21% of folks with social anxiety who are externalizers. So, um, in the, the, the response to a threat, you know, whether it's a bus coming at us or the asshole in our head yelling at us, um, is fight or flight. And so most folks with social anxiety are flight. Like it's, it's let's avoid, let's not make eye contact. Let's scroll through our phone at the party rather than talking to people. Um, but 21% of folks with social anxiety are fight. They come out swinging. And so that looks like irritability, judgment, um, lots of kind of moralizing. And so she falls into this category, but she's only prickly because she's scared. It's like a, it's like a porcupine or a blowfish. And so she, in the same breath, will say like, you know, I don't know why, you know, insert roommate name here, you know, did that to me. That was completely inappropriate. What is she thinking? That was wrong. That's unfair. And she didn't invite me to dinner. And so there's this, there's, again, it's this rock in a hard place of, um, you know, wanting, not wanting to be seen or noticed or, um, or, uh, yeah, to, to to want to to blend in and have things just just have no one notice us and notice our fatal flaw, um, but then there's this there's the consequences of yeah, that. Yeah, we, we we want to stand out, but we we don't want to be uh, we want to be special, but we don't want to stand out. Sure, sure, sure. We want to we want to stand out in the we want to control the ways in yes. which we stand out. Right, right. It didn't occur to me until about five years ago. That my pursuit to try to be extraordinary mm -hmm. in my professional career had something to do with me feeling cut off from other people. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, I didn't achieve being extraordinary in my career as a stand-up comedian, but uh, it had never occurred to me that how, how can you have both at the same time? Mm, People mm -hmm. are always puzzled when they hear about the movie star who is lonely. Mm. Uh, it it talk about talk about why it can be difficult for someone who it, and I'm not putting myself into this category, but this is who many of us aspire to be: the successful person, the person with notoriety. What their struggles can be. 
in terms of um, worrying about what people think or or struggling to find connection. Mm, okay. In in terms of because they they're so put on a pedestal. Ah, okay. That they don't get to experience for instance the moments that we have in support group where we're one of many. I see. Yeah. Well, I think I mean I think it can be particularly difficult when you're not sure why people are trying to be friends with you, <laughs> you know, if right. if um you're being approached cuz people want something from you or like you're just you're just not you're not sure. So to be vulnerable mm. w- would be dangerous or fraught with landmines mm, if mm-hmm. you're someone who is very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I think, well, here, I think this is a nice tie-in to your question from before about authenticity. And so to, to, to illustrate, I will, I'll cite another study. Um, so this is from uh, doctors uh, Lynn Alden and Charlie Taylor at the University of British Columbia um, Charlie Taylor's now at, at San Diego, but um, they're so, insufferable. Those two. Oh my God! <laughs> so, uh, so they um, they have done these series of of studies where they try to get people to drop their safety behaviors. So again, those little behaviors that we do to to tamp down our anxiety. Um, here, I'll do another necessary tangent. So, okay, um, in the book there is this. Uh, um, character who's a real person. His name is Zha Zhang. And he came to the United States from China when he was 16 and wanted to be the next Bill Gates. And um, he, w- he wanted to wear out of date glasses. Right. Exactly. Or- <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and Dockers and, you know, yeah. yes, exactly. And, uh, and so um, he, you know, he went, went through high school and college and, and business school and was, you know, working at a, some fortune 500 company. And he hit 30 and was like, okay, I think it's now or never. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so he quit his corporate job and founded a startup and, uh, he loved it. It was really awesome. But then at, as soon as he had multiple employees to support and his, his wife had just had a baby, his funder bailed. And he was left with no no source of income to support anyone who depended on him. And this was relatively traumatizing for him, as you can imagine. And he ne- desperately needed to like, cast around for more funding and to, to raise some money, but was just paralyzed by the prospect of being rejected again. And so he uh, decided to put himself, he decided to make this into a project and to put himself through kind of a boot camp style uh, project that he called 100 Days of Rejection. And so every day for 100 days, he tried to get rejected. That was the goal. And he of... chose things that w- were very likely yes, yes. to experience rejection. Right. So for instance, like he, he asked for, he asked to get a haircut at PetSmart. Um, he asked to be a, um, a live model in an Amber Crabby store. He, he went to a fire station and asked if he could slide down the fire pole. He asked things. to take a nap at a mattress at, store. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I love, I love these. And he, um, he's, all, all of these are, have been videotaped and are online. Um, how do you spell his last name in case somebody wants to search? J-I-A-N-G. Okay. And his first name is J-I-A. Okay. And, uh, and so, but I think the, his first two attempts, so day one and day two, show a really nice contrast, um, an illustration of safety behaviors. So the first day, he decided to ask the security guard in his building if he could borrow $100. And so he, he, he sets up his phone to tape the encounter and kind of runs in quickly to, to talk to this guy, spits out, 
excuse me, do you think I could borrow $100 from you? And the security guard, like, gives him this quizzical look and says, no, but then says, why? But all all that Ja can hear is the no. He says, okay, no, sorry, okay, sorry about that. And then he runs away. And so there his safety behavior was speed. So he, he ran in, spit out his words, ran away to try to just get this over with. That's what he was doing to try to tamp down his anxiety. And so then in editing the video, he realizes what has happened and also hears for the first time this guy say, why? And realizes, oh, I could have told him about this project or I could have explained what I was doing and why this request was so weird. But I just, I was in such a rush, I didn't hear it. And so the next day he's like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I vow to do better. And so the next day he is at a, a like a burger restaurant and he, um, he finishes his burger and then he goes to get a, a refill on his soda and because he sees the sign on the machine that says free refills and it gives him an idea. So he goes up to the counter and he, and he squares his shoulders and looks the guy in the eye and speaks in a normal tone and at a normal speed. Hey, this burger was really good. Can I get a burger refill? And the guy just kind of looks at him. It's like, a what? A burger refill. You know, like a free ref refill for soda. And then the guy gets it. He's like, oh, oh okay. Um, no, no free refills for burgers, dude. And he's like, well, why not? You know, and they have this very civilized conversation. And then, you know, it, it's clearly a, a, a no. He got rejected, which was a success. And then he just says, okay, thank you so much. I, you know, I, I like this place. I'd like it even more if you gave free refills for burgers. Then he just saunters off. And it's such a difference because he is behaving as if this request was totally reasonable. Mm -hmm. And what he gets in response is a totally reasonable response. Like, because so, the manner in which he yes, went about it was reasonable. Exactly, exactly. Like he, so when I, when I interviewed Ja about this story, he said, like, I didn't blow a horn. I didn't like do a funny dance. Like what I was asking for was out of the ordinary, but the way in which I did it was very ordinary. It was very respectful. Um, there was nothing like odd about it. And people respond in kind. They're, they're respectful and they roll with it. And it's, he says, I can now ask anything of anyone anywhere. It's just, it's in, it's in how you do it. Mm -hmm. And so there he used no safety behaviors. He just acted as himself as he would without fear. And he got a totally reasonable response. And, you know, and getting rejected was his goal. You know, the goal is not to get the burger. The goal is to get rejected, but he learned something about the process. Okay. So. Back to uh, Lynn Alden and Charlie Taylor. Okay, so they ran this series of studies where they um, had recruited participants with social anxiety and had some of them, uh, well, had all of them interact with, you know, another lab assistant and have a five-minute getting-to-know-you conversation. And for half the group, they said, okay, Getting over social anxiety is like getting into a hot bath. At first, it's really uncomfortable, but if you just hang in there, you'll get used to it. So that, that was you know, group one. But then for the other group, they explained what safety behaviors were, and they said, what do you do to try to tamp down your anxiety? What are your safety behaviors? And so people might have said, like, well, I, I giggle after every sentence, or I put my hand in front of my mouth when I talk, or... I think really hard about what I'm going to say next, um, or just any, you know, any number of, of things. And would, so, would not leaving the house be a safety behavior? Yeah, that, that would totally be a safety okay. behavior. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, um, yes, yeah. So that's that's overt avoidance. The the safety behaviors are you know, covert avoidance. Okay. And so they asked them, uh, the the participants, to well, let's do an experiment. So 
try dropping that behavior. Try not to do that as you have your five-minute getting-to-know-you conversation. And let's see what happens. Because you've never got a chance to learn what happens if you don't do that. So let's, let's see if, essentially, you know, if you don't conceal your anxiety, let's see if all your unconcealed anxiety comes spilling out. Let's see if what you fear happens and that you will be revealed and that you'll be judged or rejected for it. They didn't say it in those words, but that's essentially what they were telling them to do. And so... What happened is that the group that dropped the the safety behaviors reported being less anxious and enjoyed themselves more. But moreover, when later the researchers went back and asked the um, the the like the Confederates, the lab assistants who who were having the conversation with them, which of the two group did you like better? They inevitably said the people who dropped their safety behaviors because safety behaviors take up a lot of bandwidth. They they were doing this impression management. We're doing self monitoring, and that takes up a lot of our it's brain space. And ironically, sometimes they can be annoying. Yeah, the absolutely. very thing you're yeah, trying yeah, yeah. to avoid. Yes, exactly. Or they can look odd. Like the um, I know, like I've read some vignettes where like there was um, there was a, a a case where um, a man in England would go out to the pub with his friends, but he. He didn't want them to see his hand. Sh- he didn't. He didn't want them to see his handshaking. So he would turn around every time he took a sip, and like he thought this was a great way to hide his anxiety. But it looked weird. And like likewise, there was another um, woman in this this case study um, who would had a kind of a pre prepared list of topics that she felt qualified to talk about, and she would kind of forcefully steer conversation into one of those topics so she could in her eyes, sound like an expert or, or not, not sound like a dumbass, basically. And but what she it, it came across as giving a lecture or being preoccupied or just or not listening. And so it, yeah, the sage behaviors often come across not only as inauthentic, but but can cause the exact thing we were trying to avoid. It's, it seems like trust is a big issue mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. at the core of a lot of these. Right, right, exactly. And I think it's well, it's trust that that you are enough and that you can let go of those safety behaviors. Like in the book, I call them the life preserver that's keeping you underwater. Mm-hmm. Like, and so to, to, to try to let go of those little um, habits that we have and see what happens. And then, you know, according to these, these studies, what happens is that we feel better, we feel less anxious, and the people talking to us like us more, would rather have us as a friend and find us to be more authentic. And, that I think is is key. That the the very things we are doing to try to hide what we think is our authentic self is this flawed self. If we let those go, what actually comes across is is someone very likable. That our our we have enough bandwidth to fill in the gaps with natural curiosity and friendliness. Things you can't plan for. Things you can't plan for. Being in the moment. Exactly. exactly. And and that is what makes people like us. And I also think because the other person, when you get a sense that the other person is in the moment, you feel listened to. Mm -hmm. You feel, which is what you look for in a friend. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, so um, interestingly, especially for men, um, so folks with social anxiety think that they have to project confidence and competence, that that is what people are looking for. But 
in fact, when we, when we ask people what they're looking for in a friend, that's not at all what they want. What they want is warmth. And that is defined as simply being kind and trustworthy. And so there's nothing about competence or confidence in there. It's just being, being friendly. And we can all do that. We all have that inside us. So is it fair to say then, as somebody begins employing these tools, that they begin, they begin to get a sense that there are more trustworthy, safe people in the world than their brain had told them? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. That is definitely what happens. So, okay. So anxiety in general, but you know, also social anxiety, uh, tells us two lies. One is that the worst case scenario that we can imagine is a foregone conclusion, that that thing will absolutely happen. And the second lie it tells us is that we cannot handle the world out there or people or whatever it is we're afraid of. And so when we slowly you know, try to practice and stretch and grow and drop those safety behaviors and do the things that we fear, and we can do them slowly. We don't have to dive into the deep end of the pool. We can, we can inch ourselves in. Then we gather evidence and get enough experience under our belt to realize that A, that worst case scenario that we can imagine usually doesn't happen. You know, 99% of the time does not happen. And also that we can handle this, that we can cope. And even if that worst case scenario happens, we can still cope. And that we have both the inner resources, but also, you know, external things, people we can call on or just things we can do to self-soothe to get us through those little foibles and blips and bloops of daily life that happen because we're all human. And I think in those moments when we are obsessed with the worst case scenario, we rule out the supportive element of a community that we've built, Mm -hmm. that we don't go through life alone, or we have the choice to go through life alone, or to dip our toe in the water of vulnerability and intimacy and yes have some bad experiences Mm -hmm. but always be able to learn from them and to be able to to carve out a life that has meaning and purpose and it becomes expansive because we take greater chances and when we fall down it's easier to to get back up and, and try it again yeah yeah and actually the falling down makes us the I'll, I'll say it again so you can edit your that's okay um so the I, the falling down um actually is endearing to others and makes us more likable there's a classic study from 1966 um where um elliot aronson divided participants into into four groups and he had um he had them all listen to a tape recording, ostensibly of a college kid trying out for his college quiz bowl team, like a trivia team. And in the in the first two groups, um, there are there are two recordings. So one is this very competent quiz bowl, you know, per, a contestant um, who like is very impressive, and he talks about his resume and he has like lots of extracurricular activities and answers most of the questions correctly. So solid guy. Um, and in the second tape, the guy's like, kind of a doofus and answers like less than a third of the questions correctly. So is not particularly competent. Okay. So then in the third and fourth group, the, the tapes are exactly the same, except at the end, you hear this clatter and the scraping of a chair and you hear him exclaim, oh no, I've spilled coffee all over my new suit. 
And over you know many, many, many participants, the what happens is that when asked which participant or which um, which tape which contestant they like the most, inevitably it's the competent guy. The, the guy who seems pretty solid, who spills coffee on himself. That's the guy that people want to be friends with. So and those like. two things. Yes. Yes. So, so you need some kind of base of, um, of, of competence. But what I always say is that for everybody who is now thinking, oh my God, that's not me. Like I, I would totally be the doofus guy. Like I'm not competent. The simple fact that you are thinking about that and cognizant of that means you don't fall into that category. Right. Right. Because people who are aware, um, like if if you are truly incompetent, you don't even know it. Right. And so everybody who's thinking, "Oh my God, that's that's not me." You're fine. You're totally fine. Right. <laughs> and and so that's why when Jennifer Lawrence falls on the red carpet, we think it's adorable. That's why you know. That's why when when like little humanizing mistakes happen, we all say, "Ah," or or it makes us feel so much better, or it's validating, or it's humanizing. And so when we go out into the world, it's important to remember not to be. Perfect. We don't have to be perfect. Right. I mean, have you ever said to yourself, the most important quality I look for in a friend is perfection? Oh, God. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, nobody's nobody, ever said that. Nobody said nobody ever. Exactly. Right. And so, um, and so, well, and then here, this is a nice segue because perfectionism is a big driver of social anxiety. We think that people think that way. Like not, maybe not literally, but like there's this idea that, oh, I have to present well. I have to do this impression management. I have to come across, um, you know, well, and if not impressively, you know, I, or else, I can't show my soft spot because my, I'll be destroyed. Exactly. I can't show my weaknesses, but actually showing the weaknesses is what makes people like us more. And I think it depends on how we show the weakness. Sure. Because sure. if we say, let's go have coffee. And then we talk about what a piece of shit we are for 60 minutes. Yes. That is not vulnerability. Right. That's taking someone hostage in a conversation. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, there is, okay, so in getting to know, the way intimacy is built, and I don't mean sexual intimacy, I just mean like getting to know someone, um, that it is reciprocal and gradual. And so it's kind of like saying, here's a little bit of my stuff. And then what happens is the other person says, well, here's a little bit of my stuff. And then you keep doing that and you you get to know each other on this gradual reciprocal level where like so that's that's disclosure that's just telling somebody what you think and do and feel um whereas like taking somebody hostage that's confession like mm-hmm. that's and that's trauma bonding with that right fall that's that? right it's, it's the it's the people who you know where in the first conversation they tell you all their childhood trauma and you know just and and you know there are some places where that's actually appropriate like i i know that in um i have a client who um is uh, is in aa and will like that that's often how she gets to know somebody for mm-hmm. the first time that they'll they'll tell their story and so she knows you know all the dark stuff and then they they go back and then kind of do the the um the gradual and reciprocal so it can be inverted it's not you know it's not a hard and fast rule but it's appropriate in that support group exactly to do that because exactly. you're there for that right if you are if you just meet somebody you know not in that context it is more appropriate to do the gradual and reciprocal because uh, saying saying your whole truth right away can turn people off you know and so your your whole truth is absolutely valid and should be shared just not at the first conversation yeah, yeah. And, and i have found because i've been guilty of that is that 
what I'm looking for isn't intimacy. I'm objectifying that other person so that I can fulfill my fantasy of being rescued emotionally mm, mm, mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. all of my doubt and my pain and etc. Cetera, et cetera, yeah, and that's a big burden to put on another person. It, it, yeah. and, and it's dehumanizing, mm, not mm. in an overt way, no, no, no. But, but you're making it all about you oh, and your pain. Yeah. And, and I, I'm just talking about sure, sure. me. Um, and I'm not trying to lecture you as if I know more. I'm just throwing this into the, into the mix, uh, as that's a thing that I do that, sure. that, uh, when I say, uh, that's one of my safety behaviors because I'm afraid if I take too long between sentences, I'm going to get steamrolled or I'm going to bore somebody or I will look forgetful. And I've been trying to work on it for a long time. And it's really hard mm-hmm. because I'm so used to it. It's a habit, yeah. I'm afraid it, that my way of speaking is going to be stilted. And it just, it's so ingrained. Yeah, there's a well-worn neural ski slope going down, you know, one path of your brain. You know, it's as if you're, um, you know, there's a well, there's a well-worn hiking trail, you know, through that path. And so you're trying to uh, bushwhack your way and create a new hiking trail, you know, that's kind of overgrown right now. And so, yeah, it is, it is harder. It does take more, more energy. We were talking about the manner in which you, you do things uh, when you fall down. And I had an epiphany of about a month ago that I will I will often say ev- almost every process is two steps forward, one step back. Absolutely. And it occurred to me one day that having compassion for ourselves during the one step back is actually a step forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's not, I think it's not the step back, because we always focus on the step back. Whereas I think simply noticing that it's a step back and getting up and trying it again is what is actually the success. And I think that, I mean, that ties into how um, confidence works because I've had so many people um, come into my office and say, like, I wish I could just kind of retreat from the world and work on myself and gain confidence and then reemerge like a butterfly out of a cocoon and then live my life with confidence. And I always say, like, that's awesome. I'm glad you're motivated. Like, I'm glad you're here. You're in the right place. And let's do that in the opposite order. Let's have you live your life in order to gain confidence. Because what happens is, so it's kind of like the the relationship between um, mood and behavior. So like we often think we have to feel like doing something right. before we do it. We think we have to feel like working out before we go to the gym. We think we have to feel inspired before we sit down and write. But but in reality, we can we can switch those. And so we can lace up our shoes and go to the gym and like just go through the motions. And then usually we're glad we went. Usually our mood catches up and we're like, oh, this was this that was wasn't good. as bad as that I thought as bad it was. I thought. I'm glad I was here. Um, or we can sit down and just start, you know, start typing and then inspiration, maybe or maybe not, will we'll strike, but it certainly wouldn't strike if we just waited around, you know. And so confidence is the same way. We have to put the, the action before the confidence. And so when we take the step back, that's our opportunity to, to just go through the motions and get back up and do that. And then our confidence will catch up and we'll gather that evidence that the worst case scenario doesn't happen. And, you know, even if that step back was the worst case scenario, we can handle it. We can cope. Right. 
It's, it's kind of like having the dream of playing at Wimbledon, but you never want to play tennis with anybody. Right, right, right. You're just right. going to go play tennis against the wall. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, where do we leave off before that? We're talking about... We talked about disclosure. We talked about... Oh, the manner in which you reveal things to each other. Intimacy. How mm. you begin. It's a give and take. Mm -hmm. And... Was there something after that? Or did and we then, kind of wrap that oh, up? Oh, and then the um, we talked about how spilling coffee on your suit is actually attractive. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's a, why I always love in a movie when someone in the beginning of the movie does something that's kind of cringeworthy or selfish or something that you wouldn't want other people to see. I shut down if I'm watching a movie where someone is rescuing kittens mm. and they're charming. That to me is just... You don't uh, like them. You don't want to root for them. No. Yeah, absolutely. Right. You want you want to see humanity. Yeah, yeah. not not superhumanity. You don't. You want it's, somebody who's human, not superhuman. Yeah. What else would you like to share with the the listener? Well, okay. So I think um, one one important thing is that so so whenever I tell people I've you know I've written a book about social anxiety, uh, to to a T, people say, "Oh my God, I need that book." And I think that because nobody really talks, well, I guess this, this is this is changing. The tide is turning. But certainly, as of a few years ago, very few people would talk publicly about their social anxiety. Um, I think it's important to say that. So, uh, social anxiety is is kind of the technical term for being shy, and that if you ask people if they are shy, forty percent of people will say yes, will identify with that. And furthermore, if you change the question and you say, have you ever been shy? Like, were you shy as a child? Were you, you know, awkward as a teenager? 80% of people will say yes. And so, and furthermore, you know, we, we all have our socially anxious moments. Like 99% of people can identify with the socially anxious moment. So, um, I would argue that social anxiety is, is normal, that, that we've all been there. Now, it is true that, 13% of us will kind of cross the line into uh, something that gets in the way of living our life. It is, is that it, the big S social anxiety? That's, yes, that is capital S social anxiety. That's when it, when it, so it becomes diagnosable when, um, when it causes great distress. So like say we find out that we're, we have to give a presentation on Friday and we find out the Friday before. And the next week we spend fantasizing about calling in sick and having diarrhea and mm -hmm. freaking out. Like that, that's great distress. That's, that is not proportional to the presentation. It, it would be proportional to, um, kind of have it in the back of your mind and want to do a good job and prepare. And then the day before, like maybe you feel, um, anxious and like you, you, sweat and and whatnot but like that's that's proportional butterflies yeah yeah, yeah exactly exactly um dread 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 yes. that's a perfect word yes 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 um or it it gets in the way of living your life so for instance the student who decide consciously decides to forego 20 percent of their grade because they cannot raise their hand in class and get those class participation points they say well, i guess the highest i can get is an 80 oh well 
or that's a problem. That's a problem. Or like if um, if one were to uh, forego a, a promotion at work because you'd have to give presentations, you're like, I'm, I can't, I cannot do that, and so then uh, loses out on career advancement. That that would be a problem. And so that's the capital S diagnosable social anxiety. And so 13% of Americans uh, fall into that category at some point in life, which when you think about it is huge. Thirteen percent—that's yeah. that's that's a lot of people, and so the the take home is that again, I think people are starting to talk more about it now, and but certainly it's it's been there's this sense of isolation um, in the past that I'm the only one who feels this way, and then or, shame and comes shame. in, knocks on the door. Yeah, exactly. The, so the you know the sense that I yeah it's the fatal flaw, it's the perceived flaw of no. I'm not good enough. What no matter what flavor it is, and then a ruminating self obsession. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that has a name actually. So if it happens, if the ruminating self obsession happens before, it's um, anticipatory social anxiety, and then if it happens afterwards, so if we kick ourselves and we replay the low light reel of everything that just happened in an interaction, that's called post-event processing. And so it's there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after to, to social anxiety. And all of those can converge to, to form that capital S social anxiety. But you know the, the good news is that there is hope no matter where people fall along the continuum. And so like using the tools of like give yourself a role or turn your attention inside out or lower lower your standards so that you know not have to reach those those sky high perfectionistic uh, expectations um, can all help chip away at that. And and have compassion for yourself Absolutely. no matter where you are at in mm. this mm-hmm. in this thing. Uh, one of the things that I like about your book is you integrate a lot of scientific fact. Mm, I'm a data nerd. Yes. <laughs> um, and and you, what did you do at Harvard Medical School? So that's where I completed my clinical training. So um, so the the last year of grad school is called internship, and you do a ton of just working with patients. To it's kind of a capstone, um, and then I stayed on for a for a postdoc and did some research and worked with more more people and just you know fell in love with mostly the clinical work. Talk about the prefrontal cortex mm, thing. Sure, sure, sure. So the MRIs. Yes. Um, I have to. Scroll. That's all right. Um, do you want to know? So the MRI, the studies of the, the, the psychopaths. And, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So, um, so the prefrontal cortex. So we um, there there have been some some lovely studies showing that the the amygdala, which is the the fear center of our brain, and it's it's not only for for fear; it's also the a part of the. Um, eating system and sex system and like many, many other uh, systems, but it, it it's is the Fox news part of the brain. Exactly. <laughs> yes. It is the linchpin of our fear system yes. and it sounds the alarm whenever there is a threat. So yes. Um, so what happens is that when, when, uh, fMRI studies, so brain scanning studies are done for folks without social anxiety, um, the, the prefrontal cortex can, shut down the the alarm of the social alarm of the amygdala fairly quickly and fairly efficiently in folks who do have diagnosable capital s social anxiety um the the response is slower and less robust and so the analogy i like to use is that in the folks without social anxiety it's as if the prefrontal cortex dispatches a fire truck to the scene immediately 
Whereas in folks with diagnosable social anxiety, the prefrontal cortex dispatches a guy on a bicycle with a bucket of water and to put out this fire. And so, but... And and the prefrontal cortex would be the part that says you're overreacting. Everything is is okay. Right, right. It's the, you know, it's so the The amygdala, the amygdala would say, you know, okay, so say, say our friend hasn't texted us back. The amygdala immediately says she hates you and is going to break up with you as a friend. And the prefrontal cortex says, you know, she's probably just in a meeting. Like, give, give it, give it a few minutes. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Let's chill. And, and so, um, so what the, the good news there is that the architecture is all there. Like people with social anxiety, diagnosable or not, like they have all the same parts of the brain as people without social anxiety. And so it's a matter of strengthening those connections. And because there's a plasticity. Yes, exactly. With the brain exactly. and the, and the- the pathways that the neurons. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, you know, when I, so I'm 40. And so when I was growing up and in school, like there was this thought that the brain was pretty much set and that, you know, what you know is what you know. And like the neurons can't reproduce and blah, blah, blah. And so what, what, what is actually um, more recently, what has happened is that it's shown that the brain is quite plastic and that anything you do frequently um, can can change your brain so that the you know the brain what I learned is that the brain affects behavior but what we've learned in the meantime is that behavior can also affect the brain and so again anything you do frequently from play the violin to drive a taxi to watch porn to any you know many anything can strengthen the those particular connections in the brain and so practicing social confidence so you know going out there and not avoiding or dropping our safety behaviors or slowly doing the things we're afraid of making mistakes making mistakes and realizing that you know it's not the end of the world we can cope strengthens those connections the architecture is already all there and we can influence the strength of those connections through our behavior so by practicing we can we can train that guy on the bicycle you know to drive the fire truck and to you know hook not instead of bringing the bucket to hook it up to the hose up to a fire hydrant and and we can um, learn uh, a a more robust response. Yes. So, for instance, tomorrow I could go get a toy gun and rob a bank. <laughs> And, and practice that, yeah. And practice that. Sure. So, you, yes, technically, you could. And, and then if they catch me, say this was just... Uh, this, Ellen Hendrickson told me I want me you to, to read this. her book. Yes, yes. Um, why are you cuffing me? Right. You don't understand. You need... Here's her number. Please yes. call her. Here's her license number. Yes. yes. As a psychologist, yes. Um, what were you talking... Oh, once again, I derailed. That's okay. No, I derailed. I said, um, oh, I know what I wanted to ask you. Do you see that area of the brain light up in the MRI? Does the color change? How do you know scientifically that this is happening? What are, what, what are the signs? Sure. So in the this... MRI, it, uh, I'm, this might be beyond my capability. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'd rather not answer that just because okay. I don't want to get it wrong. Okay. Okay. Um, You're a liar and I need you to leave. Yes. <laughs> Your worst fear did come true. No, now you like me more because <laughs> I made a mistake. Right. Exactly. I'll make you coffee and then you can spill it. <laughs> and then we'll Good. be best friends forever. Yes. Yes. Until you find out who I really am. Right. And, <laughs> and then, then you'll then I'll abandon reject me you. Yes. and I'll die alone. Yes. yes. This has been terrific. <laughs> <laughs> so you asked me about psychopaths. Yes. Okay. So um, another thing I will hear often is... I wish, like, I need a personality inversion. 
I wish I could just totally not care. not care. I wish I could not care what people think. And yeah, I, 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 I totally understand what they're, what people are saying. I get it. And careful what you wish for, because I had said before that 99% of people can identify with the socially anxious moment. And that balance 1% is psychopaths. So the, there, there, there is a fearless dominance. There is a, um, a sense of entitlement and lack of remorse, lack of remorse, lack of empathy, or there's a cognitive empathy. There's a, there's a, I can, I, I can think, I can figure out what you're thinking and figure out how to manipulate you. Right. But to, there's no real human connection. There's no, there's no intimacy. Exactly. Right. So to, to quote, I, for, I forget what researcher this was, but it was, it's, 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 she says that, that psychopaths can understand, they can understand emotion, but it's in the way that a colorblind person looks at a stoplight. They, they know when it's red, but they don't really have an understanding of what red is. So there's a lot of mimicking. Yes, exactly. To get what they want. Right. And scarily, when psychopaths go to therapy, they actually get better at being psychopaths because they learn from the therapy how, like what, how this is really supposed to work. And they, they, it's like looking behind the curtain and, or like looking under the hood and learning how this, and I'm mixing all my metaphors, learning how the sausage is made. Yes. And, um, and then they can My car runs on sausage. Yeah. <laughs> as, as is mine. And, and, uh, and so it, it, the, the exhaust smells like pepperoni. Um, and, uh, and so when they go out into the world and can, can be better psychopaths. It's, it's almost like the a guy that goes to prison and right. then learns yes. how to be a better yeah, 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 criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so, um, and so, that, so there have been studies that where um, both MRI studies and just like self-report studies that show that the, the inverse of uh, social anxiety is psychopathy, and so that's not you know what we're what we're going for. So it would be a very active prefrontal cortex, yes. which is judgment. Sure, and then very little prefrontal cortex, lack of judgment. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. There, yeah, it's a um, yes, yes. We'll just say yes. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Did you want to expand on that? No, um, no. What are you afraid of right now? No, no, no. It's um, I'm I so I'm trying to. Th- Think of what, um, if there was a more accurate way to say that, and I cannot okay. think of a more accurate way to say okay. that. Yes. Um, what else would you like to? What else would I to like share? Um, okay, so a a, a a takeaway. And by the way, we're we're good. We, oh, okay. we have a in terms of time. Yeah, we're at an hour. So. Oh wow. Okay. All right. So then I can here. Let me see. Look at my little talking points and see. There's one thing I do want to end with, but let me see if there's anything else. Social anxiety is normal. Tips. Confidence. If we want, we can talk about how to help a friend. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So first. So one, one thing I like to leave people with is the idea that social anxiety is a package deal. That it actually comes bundled with some really excellent traits. So folks with social anxiety, this is the part of the perfectionism is that we have very high standards, that we are conscientious, that we work really hard to get along with people in an increasingly diverse world, that we are empathetic. We It's the opposite of psychopathy. Again, they have no empathy. We're very empathetic, that we are helpful and altruistic. We care about people. It's the flip side of you know not caring what people think is we care about 
people. So this is the silver lining. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and it's especially notable that as we work on our social anxiety, that those things don't go away, that as our fear recedes, all those good qualities do not. And so my, my favorite clients to work with are those who have social anxiety because they are inevitably lovely people. Mm -hmm. And it is my privilege to help them realize that it is amazing. And so that is the, one of the most rewarding parts of my job. So the world would be such a better place if every person really explored what their fears are. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. Absolutely. I, I feel like I've come a long way. Like I used to not buy shoes that click clacked on the floor because I thought they would draw too much attention. Um, in college, my wardrobe consisted pretty much of black, white, and denim. And um, I remember, I remember their... Uh, my senior year, I coordinated, I co-coordinated um, a peer counseling group. That was kind of my first inkling that maybe I should be a psychologist if I did this for fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I would, I facilitated a group of peer counselors. And um, one meeting we had, they all decided amongst themselves that they were going to wear black, white, and denim. And <laughs> and so I walked into the room and and simultaneously felt very comfortable. I was like, oh, this is very familiar and very comfortable. I wonder, hmm, what's happening here? And at the same time, I was a little freaked out because this sounds so weird, but I realized that they could see me <laughs> and that they had seen me enough that they had found a pattern and could mimic it. And that was equally um, touching. Like this endearing that I, I'm, I'm 99% sure that they did this out of, out of love and not to mock me. There's always that 1% that's like, hmm, I don't know. But, um, but there, but there's also a realization of, oh, I exist. I exist. People can see me. Like, what's what? I am. I am. I am real. You know, and and so, um, yeah. That that sense of blending, of wanting to blend in, of wanting to be invisible, and realizing that that is actually not the case. And I was trying to hide in, in plain sight. Um, was not a wake up call, but just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, they can see me. Um, so I, you know, I've certainly come a long way. Since then, I still have my moments. Like mm-hmm. I do not like to be on camera. I'm actually really glad this is not a video podcast. Yes. I can do it. I can. I have done video interviews. Um, you know, I've I've done live web interviews, and I don't like them, but I can do them. Um, I get weirdly formal around authority figures. Um, I I do not like conflict. Like I, I I'm really working on not caving immediately when there is a conflict. So there's st- I still have my moments, but um, in general they they don't own me. I can feel anxious, and that's okay. I can kind of I can surf the wave. I can go up that graph and know that it's going to plateau and that if I stick with it, it'll decline. And the more I do that, the easier it gets. And in that moment, are you trying to be mindful? Are you looking around the room? Are you changing your breathing or are Hmm. you just sitting through it? So in general, I will, I'll try to turn my attention inside out. I will turn, it's like, okay, so it's as if like there is a loud radio on in the background and uh, that's the inner critic. And so I just deliberately ignore it i turn my attention away from that deliberately and to whatever the task at hand is i don't try to distract myself distraction would be paying attention to something that's not the task at hand but so i pay attention to whatever i'm supposed to be engaging in and 
that's that's very helpful because then you're you're present and you are there to realize that this is not as bad as your inner critic told you it was going to be um and i've learned that it doesn't have to be perfect it doesn't have to be a performance and that again and yeah part of it is just writing it out and and knowing from experience that as i write it out it will get easier and i will be more comfortable yes Yes, so and another thing that i discovered very late in life is that the most important quality I look for in a friend, and I imagine other people look for in friends, mm-hmm. or one of the most important qualities, isn't whether or not they make mistakes, it's how they handle it. Yes. Do they apologize? Yes. Are, can they be self-reflective mm-hmm. without becoming self-obsessive? Sure, sure. Yeah, what's the, I forget who, who, what this, who this quote is from, but it's like life is not you know, what it is, but what you make of it or something like that. I'm butchering that. But it's essentially like the 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 problems that come your way, like how you handle those are what define you as opposed to the problems that you have. And the very thing you struggle against can be the thing that binds you or connects you most deeply to other human beings mm-hmm. and makes life mm-hmm. so enjoyable and purposeful. Absolutely. Yes. Your book is called How to Be Yourself, Quiet Your Inner Critic, and Rise Above Social Anxiety. Uh, Alan, thank you so much. It's a really great book, and I think it's going to help uh, a lot of people. Oh, I, that, is, that is the goal. I hope, I hope so. This is the book I wish I had had 20 years ago, and I'm happy to, to, yeah, hopefully it will be helpful to people. And it was a delight to talk to you. This was really fun. Thank you. Absolutely. So much fun. And you want to be my friend for life? Laugh at my stupid jokes like she did. Uh, be sure to check out her book. And uh, speaking of support, I want to tell you guys about uh, The Great Courses Plus, which is an online way to broaden your perspectives. Uh, they have lectures by the world's best professors on a variety of topics. I've been streaming the one called Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Techniques for Retraining Your Brain. And man, it is so comprehensive. They talk about the science behind it. They talk about how thoughts, emotions, and behavior are all interrelated and how it can drive you in a negative direction. But if you understand the way it works in your life, you can use it to drive you in a positive direction. So it's a lot of tools to help deal with stress, break bad habits, and make your life better. Unless you don't want your life better, in which case, avoid this. Avoid the Great Courses Plus. Um, So this is just one of a gazillion courses that uh, they have. Uh, You can learn about human behavior, history, science, photography. Uh, You can watch or listen at any time from anywhere with the Great Courses Plus app. And I think you guys should check it out. Uh, There's a limited time offer for you. You get a full month free of unlimited access to any of the lectures. But to start your free month, you have to go to this special URL today. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash mental. And I'll put that link under the show notes for this episode. want to also give uh, some love to Care Of, who is uh, helping sponsor this episode. Um, I'm sure a lot of you guys take supplements or vitamins, and 
what Care Of is, it's a monthly subscription vitamin service, uh, made from effective quality ingredients and they are, each one is personally tailored to what it is that you need. So you go, you take this online quiz. It asks you about your diet, your health goals, uh, your lifestyle choices, maybe areas that you, you know, maybe you want more energy or more calm. And then they will figure out the best batch of vitamins and supplements for you. They package it in daily grab-and-go, individually-wrapped packets. It's like a 30-day supply, and it's all for about 20% less than you'd pay for similar brands at a local drugstore or health food store, and it's really convenient. I tried it. What I really like about it is you can just grab one, and you don't have to open up five different bottles. Uh, It's organized. It's nice and tidy. And I think the thing that I like most about it, though, is that they pick out the vitamins for you because a lot of times people will take vitamins or supplements and you're taking, you don't realize that you're doing overkill on a particular one. Maybe you're taking a vitamin. You understand what I'm saying. I don't need to explain this any further. But go do it. I'm a fan. And for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter MENTAL as the uh, offer code. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter the code MENTAL for 25% off your first month of personalized vitamins. And I will put the link to that on the website. Let's get to some surveys. Oh, you know, uh, speaking of support... If you guys, one way that you can help the podcast without it costing you a penny is instead of just downloading an occasional episode or picking here and there, subscribe to the episode because not only does it, do we get more downloads, but you may forget sometimes to go and get this week's episode or you may not realize that an episode on a particular topic exists until you subscribe and you get all of them. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself waiting for the meds to kick in. And I'm just going to read part of this. Um, she has never been sexually abused. She's not sure if she was physically or emotionally abused. Uh, she grew up with a really angry dad. And they have a better relationship now. But um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to, to read. Uh, what are your darkest thoughts? I always have the urge to throw tantrums, like full-on screaming, lying on the floor, kicking and hitting and biting in the middle of a grocery store. I was never allowed to do this as a kid, and I have always had fantasies about doing it. You know, and and then the the other thing that that she shares, and I can't find the page right now. I must have uh, misplaced it. But she she has difficulty having an orgasm. She's actually never had an orgasm, and she fakes them when she's with her boyfriend. And I was thinking, boy, I wonder if there's a link between the being forced to shut down as a kid and her feeling shut down sexually now as an adult um i think that there should be a grocery store 
that we could go to as adults and throw tantrums. How awesome would that be? Yeah, you pay a little more, but every time you go in there, you show your card and then you get to tear open a box of Cheerios and just go nuts. Just start kicking shit. Kick the fruit. Kick the avocados. How good would that feel after being asked to work overtime? Just kick field goals with some, with some overripe avocados. It'd actually probably be a lot more expensive, but it might feel really good. Entrepreneurs, get on top of that. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a metaphobe, and she writes, I'm in college and recently confided in my advisor about my struggles with anxiety and emetophobia, fear of vomiting. At the time, I was regretting that I basically just let her know how crazy I was, but it was done and I couldn't take it back. Later that day, during one of my classes, my classmate suddenly looked very zoned out and pale. I leaned over and asked her if she was okay, and her response was, no, I think I'm going to throw up. Those words, those simple words that seem so trivial are quite possibly one of the worst things I could ever imagine hearing. So here I am, sitting in class next to a girl who is probably about to get sick, and I start panicking. A minute later, she gets up to go to the bathroom, and I'm still sitting in my seat while trying not to let anyone see that I'm having a panic attack. Then she comes back to class and sits right back down next to me and says, yeah, I threw up. My usual course of action in this situation would be to hide out in the bathroom for a few minutes to calm myself down, but considering five minutes ago that's where my classmate was most likely throwing up, that wasn't an option. But I couldn't stay in class either in case she got sick again. I walked out of the classroom and stood in the hallway for a minute before glancing towards my advisor's office to see that her door was open. I walked in and said, a classmate just got sick, so I'm having a panic attack. Can I sit here for a minute? She nodded, and I closed the door behind me so no one would be able to see me. Five minutes later, I could hear that class was ending, so I collected myself and thanked her for letting me relax in her office. She reminded me how perfect it was that I had confided in her earlier that day about my anxiety so that I could just walk in her office as an escape and calm myself down without ex explanation. That's probably one of the only times I was happy that I had told her everything instead of feeling ashamed and embarrassed that I dumped out all my feelings for no reason. That, that, it, I, it could be my imagination, but I seem to be reading more and more surveys about professionals, be it teachers or uh, co-workers, reacting with more compassion and understanding about mental struggle than I was reading eight years ago when I started the podcast. Was it eight years or 80 years ago? I was on a horse. I had spurs. But I had an iPad. I'm going to have to look into this. This is a shame and secret survey. And this was filled out by a guy who calls himself truly ashamed. He's bisexual in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. 
When I was in my early teens, I started going on webcams and performing sexually for much older men. I liked doing what they wanted me to do, but then had massive panic attacks while I was naked. I think this has affected my current sex life, but I'm not sure if I'm making this into a bigger deal than it is. No, you are not. That is a big deal. My ex-girlfriend coerced me into having sex a bunch of times. That is also a very fucking big deal. Um... One time I was crying a lot and she still went for it. I feel weird about it all. I got blackout drunk and was seduced by a guy I had been flirting with. I remember telling him nothing more than kissing, but the next thing I knew we were having sex and once I was conscious, I immediately got up and ran out of his room crying. I still feel awful about this. Uh, he's been physically and emotionally abused. I was around 15 or 16, and my first girl th girlfriend threatened to kill herself if I didn't do things she wanted, like date her or kiss her. There were quite a few nights where I had to call her parents or run after her when she was about to kill herself. My second girlfriend, I was in college, got drunk and kicked and punched me. She also spit in my face twice at close range, sober. She would go from pitying me to acting all lovingly. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I've had many. I've had so many great memories with my second ex-girlfriend that we're best friends now. It complicates everything because I try to rationalize everything that happened. Darkest thoughts. I have OCD, so unwanted sexual thoughts about random people, including children, or unwanted violent thoughts. Darkest secrets. When I was maybe 13 or 14 and figuring out if I was gay or not, my neighborhood friend, who was four years younger than me, was asking me about sex things like masturbation. I was horny and talked to him about jerking off a lot one summer, and he asked me to show him, so I sort of jerked him off through his shorts. It only lasted a few seconds because we both felt weird about it, but I haven't ever told anyone, and we haven't spoken in a few years now that we're both adults. I don't know if he remembers, but I don't want to bring it up. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being examined and taken advantage of by a doctor or a much older man. Also being tied up and completely constrained. I have a huge fear of not being able to escape and a few bad memories with doctors, which points to these fantasies, but writing this out still feels surreal. Uh, which I think is really common because that surreal quality is what protected our brains when we were kids we compartmentalized it so we couldn't feel it but it's still in there and for us to heal it needs to be dealt with and um anyway continuing what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to i'm sorry if i caused any harm when we were talking about sexual things when we were younger i was the older boy so it was my responsibility not to take things further i'm sorry i touched you over your shorts what if anything do you wish for i wish to stop this guilt and shame and intrusive thoughts i wish to stop thinking about awful sexual fantasies i think you should check out the episode that we did We've actually done a couple on unwanted thoughts and uh, OCD thoughts, and I think it's called Pure O. Uh, and the two episodes, one is with uh, Kimberly Quinlan, and the other is with uh, Dr. Jenny Yip, and they both deal with unwanted thoughts. And I think it will bring you some relief and some hope to know that there is a way to deal with these and that they are no comment on who you are morally. 
In fact, quite the opposite. The fact that they bother you is a good sign. Um, have you shared these things with others? I haven't shared with others because they would find out that I am capable of terrible thoughts and that would paint me as a monster. No, a healthy person would never say that you are the moral equivalent of your terrible thoughts. No, they would not. And it is so healing and so connecting to share the way your brain works with another person who is safe and compassionate, which you clearly are. Um, the stuff that happened as a kid, you know, you were traumatized. Um, it gave you panic attacks. The things that happened to you as a kid. And kids very often uh, who are sexualized as children uh, act out with other kids. And the fact that you're not doing that today because you're an adult, that, that means everything. How do you feel after writing these things down? A bit better. I never wrote these things down before, but nervous. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? You're clearly not alone because I've been dealing with this too. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? More professionals, please. And when you interview them, less talking from you just so we can hear their help. Thank you! Exclamation point. I can't disagree with him. Sometimes when I edit an episode, I'm like, oh, somebody got a little too excited. Wanted everybody to know that he knows something. Somebody's still got a seven-year-old who feels invisible inside of him. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself depressed anti-gravity. And she writes, I was at my doctor's office. I had been having appointments with this particular doctor for a few months. He's not a psychiatrist or anything like that, but he has extensively studied neurological disorders and mental illnesses. Due to many things happening, oh, and I should mention that this uh, woman is 16. Due to many things happening in my life, including my long list of medical conditions and mental illness worsening, I had gone mute. I was communicating via nodding yes or no. I was so, so scared of him being angry at me for not talking and yelling at me that he couldn't help me if I didn't talk to him. Instead, he was kind. He accepted me and my current condition. After asking a few questions and my bobbing my head in answer, he asked me, are you suicidal? My mom was in the room. I panicked for a split second, deciding what to say and lied. I shook my head no. The whole week in between that appointment and the next, guilt ate at me. I couldn't think of anything else. I had lied. Nobody knew that I was suicidal. The stakes were so high since I knew that if I told him the truth about how suicidal I was and he decided to tell my mom or anyone else, it would destroy her, me, and my relationship with any family. Which, by the way, is not the case. Talking about your feelings will not, will never destroy you. Your feelings will not kill you. But running from our feelings with unhealthy coping mechanisms, that can kill us. Continuing, in my family, secrets don't stay secret for long. I also 
have a deep-seated fear of being involuntarily hospitalized and stuck in an asylum for me to live out the rest of my miserable life while people call me insane and incurable and being put on mind-numbing drugs before I commit suicide because being stuck there would make everything that's going wrong with me worse. So the next week, I managed to get out a few words. As hard as it is to speak, I ask my mom to leave the room so I can speak with my doctor alone. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. My heart is pounding so hard and fast. I'm sweating and shaking from the anxiety and adrenaline. Then I told him that I lied to him and I was sorry about that. Then I admitted that I was suicidal. After I told the truth, my heart quieted and some of my anxiety was alleviated. I was so worried about his reaction, but he proved himself to me again by accepting me, not telling anyone, and saying that it was okay. He had been suicidal as well and knew what it was like. I was so relieved and happy and comforted. It's been because of this that I have been able to tell him more secrets and I'm slowly opening up to the only person I have to confide in. Although it's sad that he's the only person I have and that I can't even trust my family, there was a point at which he was the only thing keeping me alive and I don't know if I didn't tell him I was suicidal that day I'd be dead. I know if I didn't tell him I was suicidal that day, I'd be dead. His support and kindness saved me from death countless times. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, I'm, I'm really struck by, well, I mentioned it earlier about seeing professional people reading more stories of teachers and doctors um, responding in a way that is appropriate and helpful and compassionate. And it's just really beautiful. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Fat Prozac Princess. I look forward to that Disney movie. I'm I'm sure nobody would have any Uh, complaints to email to Disney. She's straight in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. To make a long story short, I was about 10 or 11 years old when I was at my stepsister's boyfriend's house and his family members performed oral on me and forcefully put objects inside me. That is definitely sexual abuse. Uh, she's been emotionally and, uh, but never physically abused. Growing up with alcoholic and drug addicted parents fucks you up more than a lot of people realize. My mom walked out one night when I was nine, then I didn't see her for almost a year. She died in 2009 from her addiction. My dad wakes up in the morning and has a beer for breakfast. Any positive experiences with the people who abused you? I don't have many memories with my mom. When my dad was sober, I learned a lot of things from him. Now I live 12 hours away from him for a reason. The people who hurt me when I was 11, I used to dream of burning their house down. Darkest thoughts. This is weird, but have you seen The Purge? I always say, just give me one night to go crazy where, quote, all crime is legal. I would probably rob a few places kill a few people, burn some places down. That got me thinking, what would I do if if all crime was legal for a day? 
And I thought, you know, it might be fun to try robbing a bank. I wouldn't want to scare anybody, but I would want to experience that moment where, where they yell, all right, you motherfuckers, everybody get on the floor. I get the feeling that it probably scares somebody, some overly sensitive soul. So I don't know, maybe I'd have to soften it somehow. Maybe I'd come in dressed like a duck or a Shakespearean character. Maybe a Shakespearean character. You come in and you rob the bank in uh, iambic pentameter. You got those curly Shakespeare shoes, the big puffy pants, and the clerk hands you the big bag of money. You bow with the sweep of your hand, bid them good day, and then you get shot. I was going to say nobody gets hurt, but uh, it turns out, oh, but if it was was do-what-you-want day, nobody would shoot you. I don't know. You got me thinking. You got me thinking. Uh, Darkest secret. Sometimes I steal from Walmart when I use the self-checkout. Ugh, I'm a terrible person. Uh, I do not condone stealing. But on my list of places I feel the least sorry for being stolen from, Walmart would be near the top of the list. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My boyfriend isn't adventurous at all in bed. Maybe use some toys, more positions, something to at least get me off too. Have you shared these things with others? I'm, I've mentioned going to a sex shop with my boyfriend and he says that he wants to go, but we never have. I also try to do other things in the bedroom to try and change it up, but he just doesn't seem into it. I don't know. Maybe it's me. My hunch, again, I'm not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable for 16 years. I wore funny outfits. We showed some really, really bad movies. Uh, I made some really ham-fisted jokes. And I think this qualifies me to weigh in on the most important aspects of the things most important to you, directly connected to your soul. Um, I think there's a good chance that you have a fear of intimacy based on the stuff that happened to you when you were younger and that you have chosen somebody who also has a fear of intimacy. That, t- that tends to be the dance. Um, is one person gets too close, the other person backs away. That person backs away, then that person wants to come back in. And the wanting to use the toys... Um, you know, whether or not it's connected to what happened to you when you were young um, is not a comment on who you are. What I think is important for people who've had trauma and have specific sexual desires is to understand when those sexual desires are taking away from our lives and are compulsive 
and or disrespectful to ourselves or someone else, or when they are a healthy way to share a vulnerable, intimate part of yourself with another person consensually and transparently. And so I don't know which of those two it would be with you, but I don't think you will get any answers until you begin to deal with the trauma. The fact that you said you're not even sure that that counts as trauma says to me that it's time to talk to somebody because you've been minimizing it for so long and you deserve to feel some compassion for the horrible things that you went through. How do you feel after writing these things down? Confused, sad, relieved, question mark. I don't know. I really think you could benefit from from talking to someone. Uh, if money is an issue, um, go to uh, the Rape and Incest National Network dot org. That's R A I N N dot org, and they can be a great place to find resources that will help you heal, help you deal with it. And I hear a lot of good things about them. This is an email I got from uh, a woman uh, named Lisa Clement. And she writes, Dear Talented, I am talent scout for Blue Sky Film Studio. Present Blue Sky Studio, a film corporation located in the United States, is soliciting for the right to use your photo slash face and personality as one of the semi-major role slash character in our upcoming and this is in caps, animated, stereoscope 3D movie, The Story of Spies in Disguise. The movie is currently filming, and then in parentheses, in production. I know what filming means. Please note that there will be no auditions, traveling, or any special slash professional acting skills since the production of this movie will be done with our state-of-the-art computer, generating imagery equipment we are prepared to pay the total sum of six hundred and twenty thousand dollars for more information slash understanding please contact us at the email below now i have a couple of questions that i want to run by you guys before i decide whether or not to accept this intriguing job offer They want the right to use my photo slash face. Does that mean that I have to combine my face with a photo? Because I don't know what that kind of surgery would involve. And I don't like the idea of continuing internet dating if my head is just a photo. It says... They also want to use my personality as one of the semi-major roles. First of all, it's a little offensive that it's not the major role, but it's $620,000. So, is it a hero or is it a villain? If it's a, he- a hero, I can absolutely see why you would want to use my photo face and personality. I can see a character 
with my oddly large head and fat nose using that to save people. There's a freeway chase. All of a sudden, boom, I lay my big noggin down in the fast lane. Criminal screeches to a halt. Everybody gets away. Now, a villain, maybe I use my oddly large head as the hideout for all of the other villains. Or maybe my talent, if it's my personality, is my ability to take anything and turn it around and make it about me for attention, to try to fill the sinking quicksand of emptiness in my soul. I'm going to have to sit on this one. All right, I sat on it. I'll take the money. Uh, this is a very dark survey. Um, it's a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lovely Girl. She is uh, bisexual in her 40s, raised in a totally chaotic environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and reported some of it and some of it she did not report. I was sexually abused throughout my childhood and adolescence by a variety of men and women. My mother sexually abused me from birth to maybe 10 or 11, my older brother from 4 to 5. I was raped by an uncle at 12, a friend's father a few times at 14 or 15, involved with a group of abusing priests. I lost count between 9 and 12. It ended when I became pregnant. I was given a termination. I was also abused by the head... Uh, and a teacher at my school. I was abused by a particularly sadistic group during summers when I was six, seven, and eight. This was filmed. My brother was involved too. I was made to abuse other children, perform sexual acts with dogs, and tortured. I spent a long time in psychotherapy working through this hell. I reported my brother and the head of the sadists after my mother had died and the rest of the family insisted I was lying. I have no contact now with them. I cannot maintain self-respect and relationships with those who deny my experiences. I feel strong these days that it did not kill me, though I came close. I know that there are many things about me, awesome, strong, tenacious aspects empathy, and an evil, dark sense of humor, which are there because of the abuse. I know I am brilliant at what I do for a living and nurturing and sensitive because of my heinous upbringing. I am strong in spite of and in some ways because of what I have been through, but also in many ways I am irreparably broken that no amount of therapy can fix. I will always struggle in intimate relationships. I will never myself have children and still Though less often, I am catapulted back to reliving some rape or other, but mostly now I have hope and peace and can be kind to myself, believing I deserve it. Uh, obviously, she's been physically and emotionally abused as well. Um, she just writes, see above. Any positive experiences with the people who abused you? It's hard to reconcile the good and the bad because the bad was so very hellish, but there were kind and fun aspects of both my mother and brother. My brother loved nature, as do I. He taught me about plants and animals, and mostly I am sad that he grew out of our experiences of being abused to abuse others, like he was lost, and it breaks my heart. The best thing about my mother is that she is dead. 
If that is not a t-shirt, I don't know what is. Um, and maybe it's the best thing about my mother or whoever, father, ex, it would just be the best, best thing about my, you know, dot, 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 and then on the back of the shirt is that they're dead. Darkest thoughts, nothing. I feel ashamed about actually the usual stuff. I masturbate to rape fantasies, feel hateful towards couples and families I see on my day-to-day journeys. Imagine attacking, annoyingly complaining people with a graphic snapshot of some awful detail of my abuse. Oh, fuck off with your complaining. It's not as though there's films of you fucking a dog. Darkest secrets. It took a long, long time to come to terms with having been so trained that I could orgasm on command, that all of my sexual skills I learned when I was a child. In many ways, it's easier to be single than to imagine how the fuck I negotiate this in a relationship. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being gang-raped, gagged, and fucked violently. Uh, She skipped the next two questions. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? Yes, my family rejected me, my friends. Some couldn't handle it. But many were loving and supportive and stuck with me throughout my years of PTSD, depression, and hell. How do you feel after writing these things down? I don't feel much, really. I spent so long working through my experiences that the shame and pain are no longer present in the way they were. I'm worried about triggering others and the effect of what I've written. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Please, please keep hope. Find therapy. Find strength somehow. And know it's possible to thrive beyond abuse. Keep going. Ours are toxic and dangerous histories. These experiences can kill the soul, the spirit, oneself. uh, That we deserve these experiences can kill the soul, the spirit, oneself that we deserve kindness and love and to be gentle with ourselves. It is possible to find your tribe, to build a community of love and acceptance about you. Man, that is powerful on so many, so many levels. What a survivor. And I, I love that not only did she survive, but you know, as the cliche goes, she's, she's thriving and um, so many of us, when we're in that dark place, just think it's never going to get better, especially if our trust has been consistently violated growing up. But thank you for sharing that. Uh, and then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself TB Trash. And he writes, whenever I hear any song by Freddie Fender, I am immediately taken back to a happy memory in my childhood. When I was 12 and in junior high, I didn't have many friends at all at school. I was awkward and introverted. I didn't have much in common with anyone my age. I was a major loner. I befriended a friend of my grandfather's who was in his late 60s, late 60s at the time or older. I would go over to his house almost every day after school and hang out in his basement workshop. By the way, remind you, this is a happy moment. As I was reading this, I was like, boy, 90% of the of the stories that start like this do not end up good, but this is a good one. Um, 
I would go over to his house almost every day after school and hang out in his basement workshop. He loved to fix old radios and various electronics. We would spend hours together poking around the Salvation Army together in search of old radios, power tools, and the like, and then we would take them to his workshop and try to fix them. He always, my stomach is making so much noise. He always had Freddie Fender playing in his basement on an eight track player that he had found someplace and fixed. He was probably one of the nicest people I have ever known. He always had Coke and Hershey bars in the refrigerator for me. Sometimes we would make frozen pizza together and watch television and just talk. He was so funny. He had a stack of national inquirers that I loved to look through. One Christmas, he gave me the nicest gift I have ever received. It was a card with $10 in it, and he wrote inside, Santa may fill your stocking, but nobody can fill your shoes. It was the first time in my life where I felt like I was really, truly appreciated. I have so many wonderful memories of him. Love it. Love it. I love that you guys fill out these surveys and you always give me something to build an episode out of because without these it just would not be the same show and you're like the you're like the third person in the uh in the episode me the guest and and you you the surveys uh so thank you for that and if you guys haven't filled out surveys yet, that's a way you can help the podcast is go fill out surveys, especially happy moments and awful some moments, stuff that makes me laugh or um, just rekindles faith in, in humanity um, is, I don't know, it's Christmas. It's Christmas to me. And um, oh, what am I going to get greedy? Christmas. Oh, I want to go over there right now. You know what? I'm going to post a couple of pictures for uh, Patreon donors. Uh, I am going to post a couple of pictures of uh, Grady and a couple of short little videos of him. Anyway, if you are out there and you're feeling stuck, you're not alone. You are not alone. There's always help. It's just a matter of finding it and not giving up until we find the help that we need because it is out there. It is out there. And never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader